Welcome to the Air Power Airwaves, the Air Power Manufacturing Solutions podcast series where we talk about manufacturing issues that impact you. Hey, this is Travis Steerwalt. Welcome to another episode of Air Power Airwaves podcast. Everything manufacturing, right? Uh, today, we are going to take a deep dive into atomization. Atomization, there, there is so much <laughs> that we've gone through on our outline for this podcast. So, uh, you know, strap in that five-point harness. It's gonna, <laughs> we're, we're going to get there. Uh, so, I'm Travis Steerwalt. Uh, I'm an application specialist with Air Power, and I have the honor of hosting this podcast. And I have some special guests. First, I'm going to start off with our visiting guest, Peyton Cozart. How's it going, Travis? Going fantastic. We met uh, last January. Mm-hmm. We may have met before then, but I remember last January we met at the uh, Air Power uh, Vendor show. Summit yeah. or yeah. whatever. Uh, our sales meeting and then the vendor summit so um when we first started talking about this podcast i remember uh i didn't i didn't recognize the name i didn't put two and two together and then last night we met for dinner uh to kind of podcast review once we all got in uh into high point he walked around the corner i was like oh yeah (laughs) i know who you are so uh that's cool man welcome uh, but again, you're the uh, global product manager in yep. manual manual atomization. Yep. So anything that has a trigger sprays liquid is me. Um, we kind of do a little bit of a divide. We'll talk about that a little bit on how we divide up our products. But I have responsibility for all the products that you hold in your hand, you spray electrostatic or not. Okay. Um, is in my realm of responsibility. And. Uh, we have multiple pages and multiple slides and multiple yeah. graphics of Realm. Yeah, let's, let's, let's dive into that. It's gonna hopefully it won't take us too long, but uh, no, we'll good be good. Cover. We'll be good. All right, and then on my other side is Wayne Albergati. Good to see you again. Wayne Albergati and I have worked together for uh, nine years now. I've been just about nine years. How long have you been with Air Power? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. Okay. So you spent over half of it with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Wayne is a finishing specialist hybrid. Here, you, you're well. You're a full finishing specialist, but you're a hybrid with uh, other responsibilities as well, right? Oh yes. Oh yes. Application equipment, booths, ovens, conveyors, you name it. So if somebody is, uh, if an account manager is working with a customer on setting up a uh, a powder coating facility or a liquid liquid finishing facility of any kind you're the one that gets involved with the booths the ovens whatever needs to be done correct uh and uh, i guess that would include like the 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 plur uh the uh plural component systems and things like that as well any of it yeah so there's there's a desired outcome at the end and then we have to figure out the pieces of the puzzle and put them together right to get there that's so. absolutely right and i i'm i serve on the on the same team with you mm-hmm. with the finishing team so we are <laughs> regular conference calls together oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. battling the same demons from time to time <laughs> uh okay so i also want to introduce somebody you want to come around here jai Not no really. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, Jai Armitage right there. Uh, Jai is the new Air Power marketing manager, but most importantly, <laughs> first and foremost, he's the director of this podcast. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate him uh, very much. Thank you, Jai. All right, so let's do, you know the drill. Uh, if you have any questions as we go through this podcast, please, first and foremost, if you need anything right away, call 1-800-334-1001, and that is a rollover number to any office where there's an available body at Air Power to help you. So if you have a question, anything you've seen, you, you want to talk to Wayne, you want to talk to me, um... Not me. Not him. You call us and we'll call him. <laughs> and then we'll come see you. Uh, so, um, but 1-800-334-1001. All things Air Power can be found at airpower-usa.com. Uh, trust me, that website is well worth a visit. A lot of companies have a website with an about us and a contact us. It takes you to some janky form and uh, maybe a, a little history and maybe like uh, a list of products this website is very different from the history of air power on the website to uh, to about our organization um, all key contacts in the organization full e-commerce storefront straight off of our website uh, that's doing incredibly well. Uh, I'm thankful for that. And because uh, we sell a lot of filters on that page. And, and if you know me, filters is my game. So uh, it, it's a it, uh, case studies, videos, all types of things that are available. Uh, you can get to this podcast through our website. You can get to Air Power Live through our website. Uh, you, kind of a, a, an access to our YouTube front, which is huge. Uh, so, uh, I invite you to go to that website. The website, for those of you listening, for all things Air Power Airwaves. Air Power Airwaves is the name of our podcast. You can get that at airpowerairwaves.com. Uh, our video front is airpowerlive.com. Simple way to get to it. And uh, if you um, are watching this on one of our video channels and you would love to listen to this podcast while you're running down the road man it is simple as going to your favorite podcast channel whether that be apple or spotify or pandora stitcher whatever um, and look up air power manufacturing solutions and you will find air power airwaves you can look up air power airwaves and find it that way also um if you want to watch, again, we just talked about that a little bit, but Air Power Live, uh, you can go to airpower-usa.com and look at, uh, click the, the link for videos, uh, the YouTube channel, and uh, basically, I'm gonna full circle that around to the one number you need to remember, 1-800-334-1001. All right, guys, let's go. Get into it, yeah. So. Just so that you know, you see we've got a laptop in front of us. We actually have a computer screen up there as well. We're going to be deep diving so much today. And uh, uh, Peyton's been gracious enough to supply us with a ton of Carlisle videos and graphics and pictures. 
to help us explain catalyzation in detail. And you know what? That's the point of the podcast. You know, people get caught up all the time on like, oh, you know, don't spend a lot of time on this. Don't spend a lot of time on this. Or when we're shooting videos, like we did the Megger video, wasn't a super long video. It was we got into the meat of the meat of the the, the discussion and we took care of it. A podcast is a great place for us to deep dive. And uh, so for those of you that are listening to this podcast on, you know, uh, uh, in your car or whatever, I will tell you that it will be 100% worth your time and effort to go on to the AirPower YouTube channel or AirPower website, look up this podcast with Carlisle Fluid Technologies for atomization and watch it save the video watch it like subscribe all that kind of stuff but uh you're going to be able to see a lot of graphics uh and a lot of details cutaways of air caps and you Mm -hmm. know how atomization is actually created how the function of atomization is created so i'm going to say thank you right away thanks for joining me (laughs) And Peyton, let's go. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about your company first. Sure. They hear about us in AirPower all the time. Let's talk about Carlisle Fluid Technologies. Yeah. So Carlisle Companies is our head owner. Um, they have three major divisions currently. Uh, their largest is Carlisle Construction Materials, where most people know the name, right? So when people hear the term Carlisle, they really are establishing that with Carlisle Construction Materials. And they really got their start in rubber roofing for large industrial buildings, warehouses, things like that. But now they make everything down to consumer products, but that's their business. Um, Our other division is Carlisle Interconnect Technologies and they really specialize in in communication, cabling and wiring through planes. Um, Businesses such as Boeing, Airbus, they're their biggest contractors for okay. building that cabling. Um, and then you have us, Carlisle Fluid Technologies, um, which we were uh, acquired 2015. Um, moving into that, what Carlisle Companies was before was a grouping of a lot of family brands. Brands that most people know. Um, DeVilbis, Binks, and Ransburg, which I will refer to and talk about today. But other brands such as BGK, MS Powder, um, and some of our latest acquisitions with uh, Echo Finishing as well as Hosco. So gotcha. all, all those brands kind of mesh up and meet, and that's what the meat and bones of our small organization is within the overall division of Carlisle Companies. All right, let's jump into it. Yeah. The word, atomization. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. uh, let's go over that, you know, what, what is atomization? And why is it a good thing? Yeah, so atomization's around us really every day. It's a fancy word for spray, in my opinion. Um, if you look up the true definition of it, 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 I think the Webster's Dictionary says like to pulverize or break or reduce into atoms. Um, in our world, it's really taking a liquid, breaking it down into a small droplet using some force, and we'll talk about the different types of forces we can apply to make that... Um, to make that actually happen. And then the reason we want to do that is so we can apply a coating or paint or whatever it may be to a surface, right? Because a lot of materials that are manufactured need to be either corrosion protected, they need to be sun resistant, they need to, there's all these different functions that a coating needs to have. So 
when we're manufacturing equipment, you know, we need to find the best, fastest, most efficient way for you know our target end users to actually perform that task. And atomization is at the base of all of that piece for liquid uh, on my side. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit here shortly about the history. But what's interesting, you know, you look at anytime you use a cleaning product in a trigger spray bottle, anytime you um, air freshener spray, anytime, I mean, I have a fun picture of golf, anytime you uh, smack the ground or the water too much, you know, that's really what we're doing is we're taking a liquid, we're picking it up and we're, you know, adding that force. I've atomized on the golf course before. Yes, I think I, I live, live in the water, right? So, um, but yeah, all those are a form of atomization and you know, we de definitely focus more on the application side, but there's aerosols, there's um, obviously, you know, with the whole COVID situation over the past couple of years, all of the disinfectants and air, um, you know, what we've tried to do is apply not so much a coating, but just a killing, uh, a killing surface or something to, you know, disinfect um, a, uh, an environment or area too. So all those take a form of atomization as well. I mean, you look, if you break it down, if you look at uh, <clears throat> something that almost every everyone in the world at some point, you know, one of your first exposures to that would be, or created it on your own, mm -hmm. would be a garden hose mm -hmm. with the attachment. Exactly. And you've got the the you know the free flow coming Full out spray. of the uh, out of the uh, the hose itself, mm -hmm. where you can attach your garden sprayer of some kind and there's misters there's mm -hmm. you know it, it's swamp cool you know the one you got you can turn it like five or six times and get something different every time yep. every one of them is just atomizing differently differently mm -hmm. so it's it's super simple and uh i i want to say something right now you know when you're when you're in the finishing industry like we are all three of us live our lives in it every day um, when you're in that industry and you see the effect of poor atomization by choice of all these different, you know, air caps and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, when you see poor fluidization versus really good fluidization, it directly impacts how good of a job and how fast of a job and how, how good of a job with less rejects Mm -hmm. you could perform throughout the day. Yeah. So um, I, I definitely want to touch on that as we're going through. But um, yeah, just seeing these that you had up there in front of us with the, the hmm. different nozzles and the aerosol cans and the pressure washer, things like that. It's just all kinds of... Forms of atomization. Just don't think about it, you know? Yeah, just common now. Yep. yep. So I want to make sure we cover these. So what does atomization mean? To reduce or to separate into atoms or to mm -hmm. pulverize. To reduce to a spray, so reduce a, a volume of something into a spray. Mm -hmm. And the reduction of fluids into a fine spray through the addition of an external force. And are we talking about pressure? Yeah, there's different forms, right? I mean, like I said, to atomize, you have to add some sort of external force. Yeah. Um, what we'll review today is obviously using air to do this, compressed air. We can use it using fluid pressure through a small orifice, and that pressure differential helps atomize. Um, then we'll also talk about centrifugal, and then a fun one that's like magic to me is a true electrostatic atomization. 
That doesn't mean electrostatics. This okay. is it's completely separate, but we'll, we'll review a little bit of that today. So let's uh, um, let's talk about the history. And again, we got my outline because we got so much to cover today. <laughs> let's talk about the history of atomization. Yeah. So um, it all started in uh, Toledo, Ohio. You know, uh, back in the late 1800s, um, there was an old terrientologist, Doctor Alan DeBilbis, and the biggest thing that he was dealing with, you know, and he's an old, oh, I can't even say it most of the time, an old terrientologist. I think they've got new names, but I, eyes, ears, nose, yeah. and throat doctor. This is right during the Industrial Revolution, right? So this is right when manufacturing starts picking up. And, you know, there's a lot of smog and other things that are getting the environment. So he's noticing a lot of people coming in with sores or, you know, sinus issues constantly. Now, at the time, the only remedy for that was to take, you know, medicine in a liquid form and use a paintbrush, small little paintbrush, reach into the back of your throat or in your nose and apply the medicine. Now, obviously, if you ever try to shove a Q-tip up your nose or in the back of your throat, it's not the most comfortable situation. Well, COVID taught us all how to handle that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it felt like you touched yeah. your brain at some You will learn how to deal with it. <laughs> so, yeah, so he was contemplating a, a, a new way of doing this to make it easier, an easier application for, for, you know, just applying a, you know, pain relief. Almost think of it like a chloroseptic, right? You just want to take some of that pain away so it's not bothering you. So what he did is he took a, um, an oil, glass oil container, he put the medicine in and he heated it up to bring that viscosity down, which we'll talk about impacts of that. And then using a Venturi effect, he blew air using a small bulb atomizer. I actually have one. I mean, be careful with it. It's very old and fragile. For those of you who don't know what Venturi effect is, basically you have the, the path in this situation. You have the path of the air um, creating, I guess, a, a, pre little a little pressure that pulls up mm -hmm. whatever is in the reservoir. Oh, my bad. Yeah. We you got it on the on the picture here, but Yeah, so basically when you when you force air you create a, a fast velocity environment over an open nozzle. And in this yeah. case, you're pushing the air across the top of this container. Mm -hmm. The container the the air movement picks up the material and delivers it out. Correct. Yeah, so that, that fast-moving air creates a low pressure zone that's lower than atmospheric pressure. So the yep. amount of pressure being pushed down by you know the air all around us into the container is reduced, which creates that vacuum, and that's what actually pulls the material out of the container. And effectively, once it gets out to the top, now you're mixing air and fluid together, and this is the first form of atomization. Um, so was that that invented for that ENT doctor basically? Yep. Uh, I think it's otolaryngologist or yeah. laryngologist, something like Whatever, that. Whatever. It's a long word. And uh, <laughs> I've been I've been a lifelong patient of ENT. <laughs> I can assure you. Um, but uh, so this was invented for that before the perfume bottle was invented. Well, yeah. So what? Because this and people see this now and they're going perfume. perfume. Oh. You know, yeah. the old perfume bottles. Exactly. So, you know, like I said, uh, Dr. DeVilbus kind of, he patented this technology and, you know, started to produce it to, you know, share with the rest of the medical world. Now, his son, Thomas DeVilbus, saw other applications for this, okay. including perfume. So if you ever see any of those, you know, very old perfume, I've got some pictures here, but you can find them still to this day 
and some of these yeah. finer um, perfume retailers, you can still see the bulb atomizer. And what, uh, what approximate time period was this? This was, uh, the first patent was filed, I think, 1878. Okay. Um, and then his son kind of brought in the world in the late, into the perfume world, the, 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 the tail end, like the 17, or 1890s, and then eventually transitioned into the first industrial compressed air gun. So now rather than using a bulb, now we can take a compressed air line, mimic that by controlling with a valve instead of squeezing a bulb. We're still doing the same concept. The very first uh, compressed air spray guns in the industrial world were very similar. They were suction feed or siphon fed right. um, spray guns where we're doing the exact same thing, but just now on a much larger scale with more volume, okay. right? Um, I think the biggest application for that was first in the like, carpeting industry. So early 1910s going into the 1920s, um, it was a very difficult process applying adhesive. There was a, a manufacturing step with making carpet that where they actually were literally taking a paint roller, dipping it in a single component glue, and rolling the back of carpet, right? Now, if you think about any sort of single component glue that just cures over time once it's exposed to yeah. any atmosphere. You have an ambient cure situation. It's, it, your, your roller goes, starts out the day that big and then it ends up the day this big because it's yeah. curing so fast that they can't control it. So how, what, what Thomas did is he said, okay, let's use this compressed air spray gun and let's see if we can simplify, we can put, we can keep the adhesive encapsulated away from the environment preventing it from curing, Correct. and it's spray on demand. And this is where he kind of got to start and their production went up. But it didn't get really popularized until it made it into the Model T Ford uh, up there in Detroit. So they were having a very big issue and- um, Weren't they roller painting and roller painting and brush painting? I think, yeah, the, the biggest, you know, I've seen a lot of pictures, I've read a ton of articles because this stuff really interests me. Um, the yeah, the, the they were using shellac paints. So they wanted lacquer paints were big. You know, lacquer being the you know the solvent that or the volatiles that would leave out. They usually use a very fast evaporating solvent. The problem is, they weren't necessarily using brushes and rollers, but they were tr they had some form of like a distribution. Almost think of it like a wand. All right. That is, you have a pump that's moving it to this wand and it's dispersing. And then what they do is they actually had it sitting over a big collection trough. So they would apply it, you know, do any cleaning, let the, the paint dry, and then they would do any fixes. The problem is, is they couldn't go to lacquer because it would dry way too quick. And the shellac paints were just easier to work with, but very slow. Gotcha. So back, you know, in the initiation of this, you know, Model T line, it would take uh, about a month to finish a car with painting. Now, now, now you, if you've ever been in any automotive industry, you know, they paint a full car in, what, 48 seconds, or it, yeah. it's ridiculous how quickly they can do it. Um, but back then, you know, this was the only application method. So Thomas took that same compressed gun, modified it slightly so it would work better for a lacquer instead of an adhesive, and introduced that supply line, and they found that they were able to reduce that month of application down to two to three days which That's is over a thousand percent increase. So this is goes, yep. you know, they always make that joke. You can, uh, I think they, it's a famously quoted and I think it's used in a lot, the Henry Ford. Uh, you can have any color as long as it's black, right? Because that's yeah. what they were just trying to do to mass produce things. Uh, nowadays you have all these different selections of uh, car vehicle colors, but yeah, that was the, the first initiation of getting this 
compressed air spray gun into a environment for industrial application. All right, so uh, let's. This is a, a good video here, and we're moving into basically how it works. Yeah. How how atomization works. So uh, with us watching this, let's let's go through the steps of how it works and uh, you know speed and pressure and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest thing, um, the most popular form of atomization in terms of just how many customers are using is air atomization. Now, air atomization is broken down into three major types, which we'll review today. You have your conventional, sometimes referred to as air spray, but conventional is uh, also known as high volume, high pressure. We never really call it that, um, but this is more energy in, finer atomization out. That's what it was done. And this is the standard from you know the early 1920s all the way up until probably the late 80s where this was all the manufacturers out there that make spray guns are trying to take and utilize a compressed air line put it through a product and create the finest atomization because in the you know world of coatings finer atomization usually meant that you were tying into better quality you could get a better what we call class A finish I know it's a big automotive term but a mirror-like finish, right? There's no imperfections. It's, it is the, uh, you know, the, the, the class A measure that everyone was striving towards. Then we'll talk about HVLP, or high volume, low pressure, and where that came from. And then what we're spending most of our engineering time on developing is better performing high efficiency, or LVMP, or TransTech, we've called it in the past. In the end, that is just a middle ground between conventional and HVLP in terms of air consumption. Um, but to do any of those, we first kind of got to understand how a spray gun actually works, right? So we know air is going in and we know fluids coming in. Now, one thing where we won't spend a lot of time today, maybe it could be another podcast, but the different types of material feeds. I'd mentioned suction feed. There's also pressure feed. We're actually running, you know, paint or a coating to a gun, the gun has doesn't need as much venturi because it doesn't need to pull the material out. It's getting pressure fed, almost like right connected to a faucet. Um, and then what, there's also gravity feed. So gravity feed is very similar to suction feed, but now we're moving that up on top of the gun. We're help using gravity to kind of help guide it into yep. the gun. Still requires venturi for consistency, right? You know the. The amount of pressure on top of a full cup is different than the amount of pressure on a, on a low cup. So we still rely on venturi to maintain and venturi that keeps it a main, maintains it. Exactly. So the biggest thing here is, okay, so let's just go down into conventional spray or just spray in general. How does it work? Um, biggest thing is you've got a fluid stream coming out of your gun at some certain velocity. It's, it's, fair, it's fairly slow. If you've got no air and you open up your gun, you know, we usually do paint checks to make sure flow rates are acceptable, and you open a gun with no air turned on, it comes straight out, almost like a super soaker or squirt gun, right? Um, when the air comes out, it's moving at a much, much faster rate. And what happens is in that what we call the primary atomization zone, and we'll, we'll get into the, at, the anatomy of an air cap, but the primary atomization zone, which is you know, a couple millimeters from the actual nozzle of the gun, you get a speed differential which starts causing disturbances in the liquid. You know, the liquid just wants to stay in a stream and go and hit its target and stop. 
But because the air is around it, you have this air pressure that's actually almost pulling it and forcing it. And this is that external force that initiates that breakdown of the fluid stream. And now you're breaking it into, instead of a solid stream, now you're interrupting it and you're changing that stream into droplets, right? So this is, um, we, we usually use the, you know, the, the phrase controlling chaos, because it's a very chaotic event. Yeah, if you watch it, especially the slow-mo videos that um, are out there watching a, a spray gun work. Um, now, breaking it down into a one solid stream is enough. We also have to direct it. Right. Right? And how do and, we... And most people think that at the end of a spray gun, you know, newbies, people that are new to, new to yeah. you know, a spray gun... They just think it comes out like this big perfect circle, and you know, yeah. and that's that's what you're looking for. It's not what you're looking for. Exactly. You know, you have to control what what refer referred to as the pattern. So I'm going to ask Wayne a question here. You deal with a lot of new account managers, people, new customers that are are new to you know. Um, I would I would call it uh, professional spraying. Mm -hmm. And how long does it take somebody and what kind of training is involved in training them just to get their patterns right? There's, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, not only are you dealing with proper atomization based on the material that you're using and the viscosity of that paint, but now you also have to deal with the object that you're, object that you're putting it on. Mm -hmm. So yep. when, you're, when you're translating this into putting it onto something big, wide, and flat versus something that's small and may have some uh, complex shapes to it, mm -hmm. you, you, you really have to have different angles of attack to get it all done. And so the truth is, spray painting is, is really an art. Um, you know, it is. You, it, it, just, it just is. So you, some people might think of uh, you know, spray painting, you see an artist that has the, um, like an airbrush and they're mm -hmm. doing all kinds of detail work. That is art. Painting with a brush is art. Let me tell you what, man. Painting the side of a tractor mm -hmm. is art yep. because you there are all there's lots of different tools and there's lots of different. I don't want to say different techniques, but there's there's really only one way to do it right. Mm -hmm. And so when you're when you're dealing with, like I said, different applications, whether it's a it's a complex part or it's a very simple part. You have to have a pattern and a volume of material that match what you're doing. Yep. And so that's where all this whole plethora of air caps and tip sizes and different guns and fluid pressures and regulating the fluid pressure and getting the, getting the viscosity correct, they are all key components that go into proper atomization to get the material on the part that you're painting in a, either a film build and or an appearance effect that you're after. And it's 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 a lot of work. It's a lot of study, and it, it needs the attention. It really does. Yep. Because the compressed they have air, the training. Yes. Yes. They, you know the cost of the compressed air, the cost of the equipment, the cost of the paint, the cost of the environment to paint properly, mm -hmm. are a constant challenge. And to make all of them efficient and effective, you have to properly atomize. But I grew up in a. You, we've had this conversation. I grew up in a cabinet shop. My mm -hmm. dad was a cabinet builder, custom cabinet builder. One man army, just <laughs> my dad and myself and my brother, who were very little help when we were like, you know, seven <laughs> and nine, but uh, we were more of a hindrance than a help. And a lot of times he couldn't handle us both. So 
my brother would go with my mom and I would stay with my dad and work. And I remember, you know, you'd hear that, you know, you knew we were at, at 10 years old, I was a professional sander. Oh, like, you know, <laughs> I, knew, oh, man. I knew all those little tips and tricks that my dad had taught me on how to be a, a really good cabinet sander. So, you know, you get the, this was back in the 80s, uh, early early to mid 80s, where you had, uh, everything was oak with stain. Like that was like, mm-hmm. okay. that was the bee's knees Heavy. back then. Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, three quarter oak, you know. Yeah, well, it's naturally but, beautiful. You but, don't want to cut. Yeah. You don't. You don't want to conceal it. And yeah. so, you know, stains varied a little bit, but you really wanted to see that uh, coming through. But uh, back then, you know, we would we would get the cabinets ready, then we would stain them, and uh, you know, we had a process for that with just you know hand wiping on mm-hmm. and off, and you would get it just right, and then Dad would hook up the compressor with a Banks gun. Mm-hmm. And start laying on that super toxic death lacquer <laughs> before it was made illegal. But uh, I, I think they make a good product. I think if you <laughs> caught if you get caught now with like even a little bit of it, there's huge fines now. Really? That that death lacquer. But you talk to any cabinet person back in the day, anybody in the wood industry back in the day, that death lacquer had like a. There was something just glass about it, glass smooth, perfectly clear. Mm-hmm. And I remember he would go in there and he would have that spray pattern just right. He would go across those, and you would hear the you know the trigger on, trigger off, trigger on, trigger off, trigger on, trigger off. That that you yep. guys have heard it a million times, <laughs> and uh, it would dry pretty fast. You know, it wasn't too long before it was like, all right, come on in, let's go sanding. And me, my dad, sometimes my brother, sometimes my mom, we would be in there sanding this, that layer of lacquer, just hitting the tops of it. And he would go right back in and he'd do six, seven layers of that lacquer. But, you know, knew right when it was there, but atomization was what made that finish possible. And the talent of my dad being able to learn that without any trained skill. My dad realized he had to learn how to do this, so he made some calls to figure out what he needed mm-hmm. and bought a big gun, and he still has that gun <laughs> today. You probably still parts for it, I'm sure. It's <laughs> uh, probably at the will. <laughs> I will end up with a big gun someday, but... Uh, no, he's uh, he he hasn't done cabinets in forever, and I don't think he ever wants to let go of that big gun. It's it's a lot of a lot of memory. Oh, him, so. so yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Wayne, you had brought up there's there's two most important things in a manufacturing line that everything can kind of get funneled back to you yep. outside like safety and you know, personnel. You've got production and quality, right? And production has an impact on quality if the rates change, and quality has an impact on production when you're making improvements. Our our job in developing a product is to not sacrifice one for the other, and that's where a lot of the development happens. So, throughout this these other forms of you know atomization that we'll talk about, there's benefits and negatives to you know each type and their impacts on quality and production, and why we are where we are today and where we started has such a big impact on like understanding the basis of around what is atomization, why do I care, why is it important, that sort of thing. 
Um, you know, you talked to a, re a really good, you know, there's local controls. I've got some gun samples. There's local controls on a gun that can help modulate locally when you do transfer some parts. If you're spraying a, you know, a, a part that's six inches by six inches, you don't want a 12 inch right. fan pattern, you know, with a nice right. hole. You, you might get away with this nice round pattern at four inches and you could do your 50 or 75 or 25% overlap to get your material build. All modern coatings give a recommended, uh, recommended uh, material build. Our job is to be able to do that the fastest and most efficient, right? Uh, for it, for that coating to work and function later on in that component or top top assembly product. So, uh, you know, that we we go into the. I think the biggest transition is what is the gun, and and if you look at a spray gun, you really have two components. This is my uh, director of engineering. He loves to break this down this way. You have a valve, and then you have your front end technology. This is where the, the air cap, the nozzle, and the needle, how those all work together, that's where all of our engineering um, time is spent on improving the front end. We can pick up on ergonomics, we can add you know digital items to make it a little bit easier for the operator to use. Um, we can improve the valve components so they last longer, especially in more harsh environments. But in the end, all the development in the biggest changes and what takes a conventional gun to an LVMP to a uh, uh, HVLP is really the technology that's in the front of the gun. And this is where yep. everything happens. So, you know, you look at an air cap and I've got a couple off here. These are both high efficiency caps. But if you look at them, they look relatively simple. Um, what I'll say is, in, you know, now with we use you know computational fluid dynamics, so we're we're modeling all this and we're using programs to find the most efficient way to put air and utilize the air coming in uh, into designing caps. But you know, back in the '60s and '70s, they would make each one of these by hand on a mill, and they would drill a hole at a one degree difference and try to find the most ideal relationship. Um, I saw images, they used to use old egg cartons, right? And they would collect them from all the engineering families and they would set them out. And you would literally have a table that had 200, 300 air caps. They're all the exact same air cap with just slight iterations. And the reason we're testing all those, we'll do a full spray out. We'll find the one that we can run the least amount of energy into to give us the appropriate performance or max performance of atomization. But in the end, an air cap, is a you know it can be made out of aluminum brass stainless steel it is a cut piece of metal that helps channel air so that it, when it first gets introduced to the material moving out of the fluid needle it's impinging it in the right spot at the right time and you're not going to have any external environment impacts so let's talk about this we've got this up on the screen here um, give us kind of an anatomy lesson of uh, yeah. of everything that we see here the air cap and the pin uh, in the fluid nozzle, yeah. So, really, what you're seeing is those those three major workhorse items that really go into that front end of the gun. You know, the in what's in yellow here is the air cap itself. Now, this is a very simplified drawing. If it's we also to try this port, exactly. Yep, yep. So that's that's what's actually directing and channeling the air. Everything behind that and valves and controls are diverting where the air goes once it gets into that air cap. And what we design and modify and improve on is, okay, how do we design that air cap to be the most efficient at breaking down that fluid stream? Just like we talked about earlier, we have a, yep. there's no air, it's just a nice stream that comes right out of the front of the gun. We need to figure out how to do that. We need to give it enough velocity that it hits the part. 
we, we don't want to give it too much velocity that it hits the part, bounces off, and goes somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also want to make sure that we're making long-lasting components because the idea, materials are only getting thicker. Coating companies are getting more and more volatile restrictions on what they can do. That nice lacquer paint, you know, yeah. you're putting six coats on, might only been 25, 30% solids back then, mostly volatiles. But, you know, the EPA cracking down and we're trying Cutting to create all the levels back. Exactly. Now you're looking at you know common coatings that are 65, 75, even north of that um, in industrial coating of mostly resin. So now you have a really thick material. It's yep. like trying to atomize peanut butter. Um, well, years ago, like uh, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on the powder side of the business, and you know, one of watching companies that did liquid and powder. You know, you'd walk in there one day and they're like, you know, we got all these aluminum extrusions. We we really wish we could powder coat them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the spec calls for this type of paint or whatever. And uh, I was like, well, I can help you with that. And and they're like, you know, our, our uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Our uh, permit, mm -hmm. our permitting that used to last us all year now, uh, you know, last year we hit about September and we exhausted our permit. Mm -hmm. This year we exhausted our permit in April. Yeah. You know, so things are, you know, things change, uh, the restrictions change, and people have to adapt. And, and, you know, what people need to understand is even when you're talking about, you know, the changes in some of the liquid paints, right? Mm -hmm. You guys are all, you know, everybody in the in the paint business is, is is translating this technology to thicker, heavier, bigger materials. Mm -hmm. You know that are used in. It, it's not for necessarily for paint. It's for something completely different. Yep. That requires you to somehow atomize something that otherwise should not necessarily be atomized. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at, and we can look at some of like, well, our figures, well, we're noticing trends in, and, you know, early 2000s, probably mostly in the 90s, a standard pressure industrial spray gun was a 0 0.810 or 1.2. Like this was, if you're pressure feeding it, this is the nozzle size, and nozzle size is really just governing how much material can leave the gun. Um, and be efficiently atomized. You know, bigger, bigger orifice in the front of your gun, you're going to get more flow at the same pressure. Just like you're choking, you're, you're reducing it down less. Mm -hmm. So you're getting that same fluid flow. Uh, what I'll say is nowadays, 1.4 is the standard, and there's 1.6, 1.8, and we see requests to get up to 2.0, 2.2. And again, that goes back to that, I need to meet a production number, I need more flow, right. I need to be able to atomize it. Well, is that really your issue? You know, or, are you diluting your paint? Are you bringing down those percent solids because you need to put on two mils and the parts moving by at 15, 20 feet a minute right. and your single operator can't apply it enough, right? You know, gut, air atomization is complex. It's a chaotic event, but in the end it's energy in versus fluid flow in, right? And you give it more energy, you're gonna atomize better, but there's trade-offs of that. And I think that's a really good reason and, and, and segue into, you know, the whole coin term HVLP, right? We've heard of conventional or air spray as it's been known. Um, conventional was the name of the game from the 20s up into the 80s, right? Put more, how can I make the best finishing product? You know, our JGA gun was born in this conventional era. You know, it's still our number one selling gun of all time and 
most people may not know paint as much, or maybe they got out of the paint industry, but they still remember their Devilbis JGA gun. Yep. And it's it's gone through several iterations over the past 50 years. But in the end, that was a conventional gun. If you need to break down something that you could not apply before with an HPLP or another gun, use this conventional JGA gun. And that's because it would utilize that incoming air, high volume, high pressure, and it could atomize peanut butter, right? But isn't it, isn't it, I find this in our industry, and I'm sure it's all kinds of industries. You pick up this if you want to. if I go into a plant and somebody is using whatever gun, mm-hmm. that gun, yeah, JGA. There's there's a reason why they use it. A history. <laughs> the history is either somebody at that plant dictated that that's what they were going to use a long time ago, and they've never changed. It's always been the same. Yep. Um, do you find that? There's 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 a plethora uh, there's a there's a plethora of reasons behind you know, a lot of the times the guns that people have and it comes down to um, its cost and how well it can handle operator abuse and yep. whether or not it gets cleaned properly and how much cleaning it's needed um, when you when you get into a lot of I think once you start out getting down into individuals you start going to you get down into that rabbit hole of uh, DeVilbis versus Banks versus another brand. You've kind of even the Ford Chevy complex, yep. you know. Um, but in, 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 in grander terms, um, the focus like, like should be staying on the atomization because, like I'd said earlier, when, when you're talking about getting the product or getting the paint onto a particular object, there is a finite way to do it, the most efficient, effective way in, in, the, in the result that you need, given all of the external parameters. So. Yep. Yeah, so, I mean, we keep, you know, just to make it more clear, we keep using the word efficient, right? And what does efficient mean? And what, what it basically translates into is, all right, spending less time in the booth, spraying the least amount of material you have to, yep. to still get the same quality that you're looking for. Now, that's, you know, that's film build and, and finish quality, all while using the least amount of air. So right, when we say efficient, we're trying to cut down on all these costs to put, to paint something or coat something. And you know, we we keep using this, the term efficiency and there's other ways to measure that and we gauge guns. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But in the end, we're just trying to reduce the amount of cost as an application would typically run by making small iteration changes. And then uh, sometimes there is a governing recommended change that uh, a lot of companies have to you know abide to right yep. so you can't you can't spray that lacquer lacquer based paint anymore that's right uh, and you could go to not, not only that not, you can't have it on your premises anymore exactly so you know going back to you know conventional all the way up and I said to the 80s um, HVLP actually came around and I heard this story I hope it's true because it's a great story um, <laughs> Uh, everybody, you know, remember the door-to-door vacuum salesman. Oh yeah. Uh, now this is before me, but you know, we always see it in, My parents in pop bought culture. A Kirby that way. Yeah, exactly. Because it was a, <laughs> you know, you it's a like Kirby. The, That's probably the old the Amway or the whatever. All these like you would you would have a distributor walk and knock on your door and sell you Kirby vacuum. I mean, they made a great product. Don't get me wrong. Um, but they were trying to find other ways to sell their product, and you know what they had was a large turbine-driven vacuum. And turbines, like the ones you can see, like or use like in restrooms where you blow off your hands, 
they make a ton of volume, right? The biggest thing, if you go and you see there, they're probably, what, 30, 40 CFM. They're pushing a ton of air, and they're just moving a lot of volume, just like these Kirby vacuum cleaners. But you could put your hand over it and cover it, and you could easily hold off pressure. And I'll try to do the same thing with a compressed air line with 90 PSI. It's right. going to be pretty tough to kind of keep that plugged. So Kirby said, well, let, let's, we have an output of this. It's blowing air into a muffler or what, what not to keep the vacuum quiet. Why don't we sell, develop maybe a spray gun that can actually use that air to actually atomize? You can paint your garage with it, right? These are just additional selling features that they, so they developed, and you've seen modern versions of this. It's got a really big air hose. I mean, probably like an yep. inch OD. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're, but it's only running at three, four PSI, but it's putting a ton of volume through. What they found is when you're using air volume as opposed to air pressure to atomize paint, it actually leaves the gun at a much softer or lower velocity. Yep. You get a much softer pattern. Um, EPA is looking at ways in the 80s to cut down on volatiles being pushed in the environment. Now, half of that is, okay, forcing paint companies into, you know, you need to cut this, this, the volatiles in your paint out, right? That's, and they're, they're continuing to do that. Every year, they're, they're getting more and more volatiles out of paint, as much as possible, mm -hmm. right? Um, the same thing going to the application, you know, manufacturing sites. They're trying to say, you need to emit less volatiles in the air. And they came up with, they, they tried to find a way to relate all applications, and it's, it's almost impossible to, to do this back then. Like, how do we kind of relate this? And they came up with a way, so we can judge if a product is HVLP. We know that is more efficient at putting paint on. We know that, you know, it's, if you think about it, you're either atomizing or you're, are you dispersing paint? You know, yeah. are you taking a fluid serum and just kind of breaking it up enough so that you're coating a surface, right? That's an extreme, back to that Model T. You know, they're just pumping something to a nozzle that's just kind of squirting it out, like the garden hose on the flat setting, yep. right? Um, what they found is, okay, well, we can manage, we don't care what your air volume is on your gun, how much can volume is, but what we can measure is pressure. And every gun has an air cap. Every air atomization gun at the time had an air cap that they could tap into and measure. So they came up with a rule that is 0.1, not zero. So airless doesn't count. We'll talk about that in a second. But airless is not HVLB, but air-assisted airless can be. Um, that's 0.1 up to 10 Good. PSI. If you're at 10 PSI at the very back of this cap, or lower in normal function, you are approved to use that product. And this is 1988, 1989. Um, our probably most well-known two products at that time where you know the JGA and the Model 95, right? These are legacy Bing's products, um, and they created HVLP versions of those. So you now have in 1989 a lot of customers uh, in these, and these are big accounts. You know they're not going after the the guy who sprays a gallon a month. They're going after the hundred gallons a week. You know, major manufacturing facilities were who also have the most ap applicators, and they're cutting that down. So these. Businesses are like we have to be compliant. We have to follow this new South Coast Air Quality Management District, and you know the EPA has a bunch of different districts. South Coast uh, is probably is definitely the strongest, has a lot of voice. And when we are certifying air caps and working with them, you know we go for South Coast first. And if we get the approval there, it kind of spreads to the other jurisdictions. It doesn't always work out that way, but they have kind of the the most strict rules. So we'll. We'll kind of cover, you know, compliancy and working with 
um, what that means. But going back to the HVLP, the, the limitation of rule is 10 PSI at the cap. Um, now, you know, I've, there's a couple good graphics we'll talk about. Um, and the biggest thing is, so you have this conventional world that was all the way up into the 90s. We still make conventional products today. Uh, we still need that high pressure, high volume to atomize more aggressive materials. It's, there's still a need for it. But there's this big marketing stipulation around HVLP being the best. Now, I, I made a joke with you guys earlier. I said that go to a painter that was painting before or painting during the 80s and into the 90s and what they think about HVLP and then talk to a modern painter today who may be you know, more recent switching to HVLP. And there's a major difference in, in, uh, in viewpoints around. I use an HVLP gun. I use a conventional gun. It's, it's vastly different. Marketing has kind of made it seem HVLP is the ultimate, the best. And it's true in certain cases, and, and our job from the very beginning was, and what we noticed, you have a conventional spray gun that atomized great. It broke down the material very well, and it could atomize anything under the sun. When we first started our iterations of HVLP, yes, our, our ability to keep paint on the part and not waste a lot of the material you know, was improved, but now our quality is bad. Yep. Right, we can't break. We aren't used to breaking down. We've spent 50, 60 years developing the smallest droplet size mm -hmm. to give the best finish quality, and now all of a sudden we don't have that pressure. How do we use volume? And then I, I will be. You look at some of the the specs of those old products. The the Mach One, for example, is a big bink. So it was like our first iteration of an HVLP product. Used 20 to 25 CFM per gun. And, you know, and and I know some some places still use that, that sort of technology, but you got 100 guns, 25 CFM, you know, spraying three shifts a day, that is a ton of money to keep the... Comp compressors were okay running conventional guns because yes, it used high pressure and it used high volume, but nowhere near the numbers that the earliest editions of HVLP did. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from the early 90s up into, you know, I would say the mid-2000, mid I don't mean for 2010s, it's not, it's 2005 right in that realm we're trying to mimic conventional spray with an hvlp cap right we're trying to find a way to make this you know customary blue is more with less yeah. more with less right and this is where a lot of the development and in, in changes that have happened now in other parts of the world um, outside the u.s they have other rules. I mean, they, they kind of fit on to that same HVLP mandating, but I then- mean, Europe has strong yes. opinions on oh, not only liquid, so. but powder. Absolutely. Um, and when they're designing, what they're able to do now in today's world is, all right, you have an HVLP gun, and they have these standard tests to prove that it is an HVLP gun, but Collectively, they can design a air cap that may not be HVLP in its normal operating condition, right? So we say 10 PSI at the cap. Really, that means anywhere from 15 to 25 PSI going into the gun because you have pressure drop, and then as soon as it gets the air cap, it's all moving really fast. So the, that's the way that they're measuring it. But if we can prove this, another air cap is just as efficient as this HVLP, can we use it? Can we allow these accounts that are mandated because of the volume of material or the amount of volatiles that they typically put in the air, can we get them to use something that's not HVLP but still as you know, efficient at coating as HVLP? Yep. And this is where the term compliant or compliant air caps come in. Now, truth be told, um, it is a very big 
you know, nomenclature in the rest of the world, not so much the U.S. We use compliant or compliant air caps. Um, other manufacturers use other terms. You may use, hear us use high efficiency or trans tech. This, these are just marketing terms, but in the end, it's LVMP. So, you know, you had conventional was HVHP, you have HVLP, and now you have LVMP for low volume, medium pressure. And this is just a middle ground. You've got conventional using, you know, 40 to 100 PSI. We've seen it. Um, then you've got a in a normal condition. We, you know, I'm sure you guys have been in accounts where they have an HVLP gun spraying at you know 60 psi going <laughs> in the gun. That just happens. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun story. But you have that HVLP world that should be between you know 15 and 20 psi, roughly. These are just very generic ranges. You can be outside of that depending on the air cap. But now we're in this middle ground. We're probably 25 to 35 psi. And what, all, all, we're, all we're meaning by that is if you were to take a amount of energy pre in terms of pressure in the back of that cap, what is that, that nominal range that these operate at? You know, there's a good graphic that shows, you know, you know I, I, I like this graphic. It's, it's a little bit um, convoluted. You know, they always say best finish quality is conventional, right? You always hear this, finer the better. And this was the, you know, this is what most people kind of live by. I get a finer trouble size, I can do finer coats, I can do more coats, I can do more control. But in the end, what I would say is finer atomization isn't always best. The best atomization is what is appropriate for that application. There, um, there are stories that, and especially with the developments in coatings, certain coatings actually wet out better and give a better final appearance if they're sprayed with HVLP and they're in a larger droplet size. So. In those particular cases, you spray with a conventional cap and it's gonna, not going to lay out right and the operator is going to spend a lot more time trying to get it to look right for his visual pass. Yep. So what I would say is in those cases, yes, it's the best finish quality is typically conventional and you can get it better, but is it the most efficient? Is it going to save you the most money? You pay for paint four times. You know, We talk about that in, uh, in uh, the transfer efficiency you know, webinars and things. Um, and anytime we can reduce just the amount of paint spray, it's four times the cost savings. And that's the number one cost that our customers have to deal with every day is yep. buying paint. So, um, you know, we get this world and I don't want to gloss over LVMP, transect. Just when you think about that through the rest of this, that is a middle ground between, it, it has the quality of conventional, but the efficiency of HVLP. So it's kind of like right in that middle. And this is where we really try to pride ourselves in, in trying to produce that. Um, we do have compliant air caps in the U.S. They're typically on gravity-fed guns because it's very difficult for any of these EPA regulations to say exactly what viscosity, what paint, how to test. You have an operator with a pressure pot or pump that's pumping material to a gun. You know, its transfer efficiency drastically changes if they're at 5 PSI or, you know, 50 PSI, yeah. right? So. The only way we can effectively test it, and the thing that's controlled 100% within the gun, is a comp, you know a gravity-fed transtech or high-efficiency air cap, and we can get those certified so that HVLP-required application uh, facilities can use that. But that's only on gravity. There's a big stipulation that oh, I have a compliant pressure. There's no such thing as a government-approved uh, pressure-fed compliant air cap. If that makes sense in the U.S. Yep. You that? You know, when when you talk about all of this in in these different techniques to apply or atomize the material, and then you add in the stipulation of 
where you're talking about different compliance agencies mm -hmm. imparting factors on you that you have to to stay within you know ultimately it's boiling down to what are the VOCs or the considered nasties in the right. in, in the yeah. paint that are required to make it a liquid so that I can spray it while it simultaneously will harden and then perform the task that it needs to mm -hmm. and then combine that with the volume overall that you're doing there's 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 got to be a um, some kind of a defining line between or I, I think be careful here the, the costing of the permitting so that the VOCs that you buy kind of determine the cost of your permitting to be able to spray them yep. and so there's you, the, the 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 dividing factor here is how you atomize it in order to get it onto the, the product that you're spraying in the most effective efficient manner to satisfy both yep. exactly. and it's it's a it's a whirlwind of trial and error and it's different designs dance, really. Really. it is it's a, it's, it's a dance and it's a balance and it's it takes time effort and energy to get it all right and um, you know in the end that's why you see so many variables and options for, for tools to, to be able to pull this off absolutely and to and do it just like customers are balancing you know we're balancing with the application you know the coding suppliers right they're doing the exact same thing we're trying to make ours more efficient they're trying to take VOCs and Right. You know, items out that would make limit their customers. You're almost battling each other. Yeah, well, it they're happens. They're making it harder. Right? They're making it harder for us. <laughs> it to, can't to be my fault. It's the pink guy's fault, and as all, it's not well, the pink guy's fault. It's right. the application. Yeah, so, but no, we 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 really try to work together as much sure. as we possibly can. We try to see where they're, what direction they're taking, and innovations in some of our newer products are really we're a joint effort working with these guys, understanding. Hey, where's pink going to be at in five years? Mm -hmm. And we want to develop a product for you today. Right so that you can effectively increase and push your product out at the same time because it is a partnership in all reality. Um, so, you know, they're pushing coding companies with, you know, the big thing about switching from solvent-borne to water-borne and, and, all right, we're going to use electrostatic, non-electrostatic with the equipment and how does that impact the use of the, the, you know, the coatings that they're using. So there's this, there's other things that are happening outside of just, we're just looking at air caps, right? This is one piece right, of the puzzle, right, right. let alone everything else that has been done over the past 50 years to, you know, decrease the amount of volatiles that are leaving a plant each day, right? That's yeah. our target and goal, and that all goes back to efficiency, and again, it's, it is a, we could spend hours on just this and the trends, but right. from an essence, that's, that's really air spray, right? So when yeah. we think of air spray or air atomization, that is using air as that external force to break apart material. Yep. So let's talk about that uh, that oxymoron. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. The uh, air air assisted airless. airless. Yeah. So I I always make that joke because it sounds, you know, it's been coined now as AAA or you know <laughs> yeah. AAA because of how dumb it sounds. Air assisted airless. And, this is another major form of atomization that we see every day, and, and all related at the end back to that production quality piece. So, on the other side of of you know Devilbis really working to improve and, and and scratch the surface on innovation with air spray, you know we also had you know our Bing's brand, which is where we're most strong with the airless technology or hydraulic atomization is the like the official term. Now, hydraulics, you know, as you, a movement of fluids, um, you know, what we're basically doing, we're in air atomization, you had air impinging a fluid stream, 
So you had very little resistance to that fluid stream. And because of that, you can usually operate in pressures under 100 PSI for you know, these products and small guns. Um, but even, you know, well, we kind of come up with a threshold of like 300 PSI. That's low pressure to us. Um, when you are working with more aggressive materials, you know, they, they found a way to apply that coating faster and even in, large, in larger ways by using fluid pressure. So if you're, you know, if you've never sprayed air, let's think of a power washer. I love using this yep. terminology. Um, a power washer, you know, it might be gas powered or electric powered, whatever. All that the pump's doing is supplying, you know, 1,000, 2,000, whatever your limit is, all the way through a, a hose into a gun, a hand tool or whatever it may be, into a nozzle, right? And judging by what nozzle you put on there, the white, the green, the red, the black, whatever the one that rips, you know, cement off, yeah. <laughs> whatever that one is, yeah. the zero degree, um, that is the interface where that high pressure coating is now being exposed to the atmospheric environment. So you have this massive change in pressure that that material is experienced. What we can do is take that technology and say, all right, well, what if we cut it so that it's actually creating a pattern? Let's try to mimic what we were doing with air atomization and try to use just fluid pressure to be able to produce the same you know, oval or desired round shape so that we can, you know, instead of, you might be in an environment where compressed air isn't available and you may only have, you know, electric or enough compressed air to run just a pneumatic pump that are much yeah. more common in our industry. Um, you think about it like the side of ships or any of the, the protective coating worlds where they're putting a very, you know, corrosive uh, uh, coating that will prevent any like rust from like, oil drums or ships or the whole ship world. containers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and those coatings are typically, you know, 80% solids or higher. They're really thick. And you put them on at, you know, when we're looking at a cosmetic finish, maybe two mils max, but these guys are putting on 15, yeah. 20 mils wet to make the coating last as long as possible. Mm -hmm. If you put that same coating in a suction gun or a pressure feed, it would take hours to spray. You be, yep. it's, a, it's like using a, a, like a little pache. 4,792 <laughs> passes. <laughs> it would take forever, right? So airless really got to start, okay, I need, to, I need to atomize a lot of material really fast, right? And, and we're not talking like gallons a minute. I mean, but we're, we're, we're definitely up, you know, above 20 ounces, 30 ounces a minute. And they can get higher depending on how you have everything set up. But the idea is, let me, I don't need a very fine finish pattern. I need just something that's going to disperse this efficiently with an approved amount of, you know, quality or atomization, yeah. and then get it onto a surface because I'm going to do, you know, you know, 70, 80 percent overlap, whatever they might be doing. The finished quality doesn't mean as much to me. I just need to put a lot of material on here quick right. because I've got, you know, I got to go on to the next part fast. So this is where Airless really got its start, and it looks very similar. Similar, I and mean, you'll see some pictures of it. The one we have right here, you know, this is our big 75 gun. That is just air or fluid inlet, that's it. You know, works up to 7,500 PSI, and we're now in that high, pre what we call high pressure range, high fluid pressure. Now, not like sealants and adhesives, they're, they're working with different types of material, but from a liquid finishing perspective, we're in that 3,000 to 7,000 PSI. And they're working with those pressures because they have to move it through a hose. It's got to get to that um, orifice, 
And then the way we design that specific orifice, you know, typically made out of a much stronger material because we're putting a bunch of coating through it and it will wear like uh, the mouth of a river. It's got to be able to atomize the material efficiently enough. We get to, all right, can we use this airless technology for better quality finishes? And I want to say that depending on your coating, airless isn't always a bad option. There are definitely applications nowadays that they've des the development that we've made in some of our airless technology. You know, I know that Alan, you guys work with Alan a lot, has really pushed forward is we're making finish quality of airless guns a lot more improved, getting it closer and closer to air spray. Yeah. Airless is great because as soon as it leaves the gun, there's no air pushing it. It's yeah. out, its velocity is slowing down as soon as it leaves that gun. Yeah. So its efficiency is great. Um, that, that is an advantage. Exactly. The lower velocity is an advantage. Correct. So, and you look at, um, if you look at like a trigger sprayer or any of these, those are all hydraulic atomization. They're working on a very low pressure, but they're, they're just forcing fluid through a small, you know, shape like the front of the uh, hose to create a specific pattern. That's all hydraulic atomization, yep. just like airless technology. Um, the biggest strides we wanted, you know, we found is, yes, we are definitely creating a nice, very efficient spray pattern that's hitting the part, it's coming out the gun slow, it's, it's good enough, but now we want to take that and apply it to a more fine finish required environment, right? There are some materials that are very shear sensitive, right? So they do not, they don't like this uh, form of atomization. Right. Um, but then again, there's also, I need to put on more material quickly, but I need it to be a good finish, right? There's always this, hey, I, I love airless, but I can never get the quality that I've wanted. So that outcomes the, uh, the jumbo shrimp, the air-assisted airless, right? What does that actually mean? So when you look at an airless pattern, you know, just if you could look, if you're looking at it from the profile, and you can do this with any airless gun, just with the pattern card, on the booth wall, whatever. First time you trigger it, and you haven't balanced any of your um, pressures in your tip, you haven't got that all set up right. Likely what you're gonna see are what we call cattails. And you get this pattern where you have a, a pretty appropriate size pattern right in the center. It looks just like a normal air spray gun would produce. Yeah. And you got these two big blobs at the very end. Yeah. You know, fluid, is, behaves like um, a, a gas in most environments. Path of least resistance, it's going to find it. Path of least resistance in a cat eye is right at the very end, the tails. We, yep. So we call them cat tails. Um, this is undesirable in fine finish, right? right. <laughs> Very yeah. undesirable. This is where you get striping. Right. Um, you get a material build in that pattern. So the middle looks great, and then you've got these two big lines on the outside. Yep. It's less soft touch and more yell. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. So it, it jumps out. These fine finish environments, they're not looking to put 15, 20 mils of material on, right? They're just looking, they're, they want to put on, you know, in a, a smaller amount yeah. of material where those would jump out easier. Or, you know, in the wood industry where air-assisted air airless is the most popular, mm -hmm. they're not putting on as much material or it's more translucent so you can see it. Um, so what I would, what, what we designed was, okay, it's very simple. You're putting pressure flu through a cat eye hole You've got these uh, cattails generating from it. Let's use air now to force those cattails back into the pattern. And again, back to that whole balancing thing. How much fluid pressure is going yep. into the gun? Yep. What is my fluid tip size? Am I 
you know, my undersize and my oversize, we see it happen all the time. Yep. Um, and then how much air am I using to do that, right? Cause you, well, and you've also got to do it to where your cattails being pushed back in don't disrupt the pattern. Everything else in the pattern that was okay. Exactly. You know, it's it's it less was, is more kind of thing. correct. And you know, we try to dummy proof that with a lot of our designs, um, just by creating an ideal balance between how much air is actually going to the ends versus how much air rebalancing on the sides to just keep it intact. Because we're almost we're, we're sandwiching it heavy here, but how do we keep it flat here? Because you're you know, usually making a Anywhere from like a 10, sometimes smaller, six inch, but all the way up to like, you know, 14, 15, sometimes oh, yeah. 30 inch pattern, uh, if you're working especially with airless at high pressures. Um, but it, that's all governed by the tip. It's just how managing you are with that air to balance everything out. You're also adding velocity now. So back to the thing that made airless great, yep. low velocity. Right. Now we're using air to kind of push it. Now we're kind of taking away some of that efficiency. However, most air-assisted airless environments or applications are lower viscosity materials. And that 7,000 PSI threshold that you had with airless, now we can bring it down. And in you know, the, the US, we're working usually under you know, 1,500. Sometimes we go up into that 4,000 PSI mark, but we really don't need that much fluid pressure. Yep. Yeah, air-assisted airless, you'll drop anywhere. I, typically, I see that anywhere from nine to 1,200 PSI. Yeah. To your, point, to your point, because the viscosity of the material is thinner. Exactly. So you, you don't, don't need as you much. You don't need as much. Right. And again, that's, now, like I said, we're, we're, we're still adding an external force. We're using fluid pressure in a, you know, a controlled orifice to create that expansion where you're at high pressure, and now all of a sudden you're at atmospheric pressure, boom, you're separating out. So that's still that same concept, but we're not using air anymore. Right. And in, in reality, we can call it air-assisted airless because we're still using hydraulic atomization. We're just pushing it with air. Right. Yep. If that makes sense. Yeah. So this seems like a great technology if you're trying to, you know, we talked about the boats, uh, the ships. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about roof coating, mm -hmm. you know, when you're coating large surface areas and you, you need, need to get a good it. protective film, you know, where the, the finish up close is not as important mm -hmm. right. as the, as the uh, you know, cosmetically yeah. or, you know, to the eye, the, the ooh, ah, you know, people complain about a, you know, I want a car that has been painted perfect with no orange peel. Mm -hmm. This is not your world. Yeah, it's not, he's, <laughs> this uh, is a functional. Maybe someday. It's a, it's maybe a, someday. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a functional way to functionally coat something. Exactly. Uh, that's large fall, you know, large surface areas. So okay, let's uh, let's roll through. Um, uh, I guess we're going to talk about uh, electrostatic. Yeah. So we'll cover this. Th you know, the reason I wanted to go through, at least with in conversation, why it makes sense to cover um, air spray and hydraulic um, atomization or airless, air-assisted airless, is because, you know, we have these two forms of technology that are, you know, the, the most popular. Then everybody hears the buzzword electrostatics. So we yep. need to apply electrostatics. And why? Because it gets more efficient. It means the, all the, the trade names that are out there. What does it mean? Um, I, where does electrostatics come from? You know, I have a hard time continuously spelling it on things because it gets, it gets, I think, overused a little bit. And what I mean by that is, you know, electrostatics is a very big keyword. We do a ton of development. 
into electrostatics and using electrostatics to help our customers save money or not, you know, the target end users. Electrostatics started, this is, I, I think I told you guys this story, it's a really cool story. So, and for anyone who's a big OSHA fan, this is way before OSHA was really uh, prevalent in manufacturing, at least um, back in the 40s, right? So, uh, there's a gentleman, his name's Harold Rainsberg. He worked at his dad's tin shop. Now, they produced those, uh, they had cookie tins, that's what you most see in there, yeah, they yeah. brass, and they, they Not them up here. Yeah. yeah, a couple pictures of them. Um, but what he noticed in, you know, part of his role was maintenance and cleanup after, they used to just have these tins go by on an overhead conveyor, and they would spray them with just, you know, uh, non-electrostatic at the, you know, the time, they're just airspray guns on a reciprocator, right? They have a bunch of parts. They had it set up, and every day he noticed, because right outside the booth was a transformer, you know, for running the line. And, you know, it sounds funny because it's, you know, why would they have a trend? This is back when 70% volatiles and solvents yeah. in the environment, but then the transformer right there. But anyway, every day you notice is that on cleanup, on the backside of that transformer, there would be a large buildup of paint. And he couldn't figure out why it was only building up on one spot. So, you know, upon investigation, this is where the, the biggest electro, electromagnetic field was, was sitting behind that, you know, right. where the most current was. So he said, well, maybe there's there's something to this. You know, he's just a, you know, he works at his dad's shop. He's a maintenance guy. And so he designed what we refer to as the number one process. Now, just like the he number was. Number one. Yeah. Heard that. <laughs> yeah. So he is, what he's taking is he's like, all right, I know that if paint is exposed to a field, it's going to, if, if something is at a high voltage, it's going to be attracted to it. So what he did was he put a big grid around the parts coming by. So still using the same guns, but now he introduces, you know, we call it a Dietering grid, but it's just basically a bunch of wires, almost think of like a big fishnet that's all charged up to a high potential. And instead of just spraying the part, it first passes through this Dietering grid to hit the part. And what he notices, their transfer efficiency definitely went up. I mean, get paint moving oh, yeah. from the product to the piece, because what happens is as it passes through this grid that's at a high voltage potential, what happens is it kind of picks it up. That grid wants to go back down to zero. And this is actually grabbing onto some of that to carry it to the part which is at ground. And his uh, transfer efficiencies went drastically. Their paint usage immediately decreased. Now the problem with the number one process is you have a very large grid that's at 100,000 volts, right? And they're probably producing a lot of current, much higher currents than we are using now to right. make our products more safe. But, you know, this is a big risk, right? You're also spraying a solvent-based material <laughs> through a 100 kV grid. That if, yep. you know, we, I think we, uh, the, the term a thermal incident or thermal accident is a, a big piece. Right? We, we stay away from that. We've so, actually talked about thermal incidents <laughs> and thermal accidents on this yes. podcast. You never before. say the other way, right? The, the F word. We never say that. Yes. Right? Um, but again, the whole, the whole concept around this was, you know, taking that charge and bringing it to the part, and then it can lose its charge. Yeah. What, what he found, well, what, why don't we do this? Rather than having this big piece of, you know, capacitor basically set up at high voltage, why don't we just charge the paint up that's leaving the gun? And then that way, we're minimizing what the capacitance is. We're not, it's a much more safe environment. We don't have anything hanging out. And this is what created the number two process. 
Now, I, I have actually shot that gun before. Have you? Oh yeah, yeah it's magic at, at uh, Toledo. Yeah, the Toledo. It's, it's a. It's a. I I encourage anyone who's in the industry to at least watch videos on it if you don't have an opportunity. I mean, look at this video. You know, those of you who are watching this, you see no paint in the air. There's no. The, keep in mind, you're not in a booth. This is open air in a in a building, um, and he's coating from one side of the structure and there's a hundred percent wrap around um, I can see a little bit of light areas but he's moving through it pretty fast but to his, to his uh, credit um, but that's this is used in you know schools where they have lockers lockers and they're gonna go through they can tape up around the outside you know mm -hmm. use some masking on the outside they can whip out the lockers in a day. Mm -hmm. You know, one or two of these guns with a couple guys in there and go through and paint everything. Exactly. So this, yeah, that what what you're seeing a video of is our number. So when two when was guns. this gun produced? We still make it today. Oh, um, I know. When was it first? Like the first patent? Fifties. Fifties. So early fifties. I I cut my teeth in this industry in powder coating. Yep. I always thought that the electricity, because I've never put two and two together with a, the number two gun. Yeah. Go fit number two and two and two together. <laughs> That's a good um, I, I always just had it in my head that, you know, powder coating perfected the electrostatic process and then they adapted it with the, with the electrostatic powder guns. But in, that, in essence, the powder people were, you know, people that they came up with powder. <laughs> that they were messing around with that. They started messing around with that, and to my knowledge, in the early '60s, early to mid '60s, mm -hmm. and and powder really hit, really started to become its own beast and process. Late '60s, '67, '68, '69, something like that. And that started to take off. I might be a little off in my years, but um, it's just fascinating. Spending so much time in powder and then, then uh, being able to see how well that electrostatic number two gun. Now, there are other electrostatic you know, liquid guns, mm -hmm. but This is that the is only one that's electrostatic. So, to do a quick review, yes, powder is when I usually you're first talking about electrostatics. The first thing everyone kind of jumps to is powder. Now, okay. powder, powder requires electrostatics to function properly with the modern technology that these Correct. powder suppliers are creating. Liquid doesn't need it. You know, if you were to throw a handful of powder at a metal part, which is you know just in your hand, some of it would stick, but most of it would be you know would hit the part and fall off. When you charge up powder, right, and you use electrostatics to charge up the powder. Um, and I don't want to butcher it. I'm not a powder expert. Well, you're 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 charging your powder at the tip. Yep, exactly. As it passes passes, passes through the electrode. It wants to carry it to the, around the grounded electrode. part, and it wants to stick there because now it's got it's removed its charge, but it's already now it's adhered to, and right. then you cure it right, just like you would do with liquid. Uh, but a lot of people think, oh, powder is you know powder is electrostatics, but really it it all kind of started with liquid first, and you're like, wow, you're spraying electrostatically with a flammable. You know, solvent, but powder yeah. is also very flame, uh, flammable. So, well, anyway. that's <laughs> yes to a point. Yes, but it's only at a certain PPM. Correct, correct. So, back to this. So, this is one of the most unique products, and you guys talked about using it or have an opportunity mm -hmm. to use it. It is like magic. I mean, it looks like 
usually when you're spraying something, you can see the paint. You can see, you know, the paint hitting the part and falling off. This one almost feels this number two process gun. You put the you put it in front, you pull the trigger, and then all of a sudden the part just starts changing color. It's that, in in, in the end, it's ninety nine percent transfer. It's more efficient than a paintbrush, yep. right? Yep. And the only negative I would say about this, and why why isn't this used in everything, right? Why don't we have if it's ninety nine percent transfer efficient? Right. You know, nothing else can match that. But the problem is, is it has a very fine amount of coatings it can work with, and obviously you can see speed of application is not as low. So how can we take this technology, right? Um, you can see some sample images of applications that we typically uh, see our customers using. But how can we take this electrostatic piece and apply it to our more popular air spray and hydraulic atomization, right? So. Yeah. This is where the you know the, the real coin term electrostatic. So I actually have a this is a really cool video to kind of break down what you see on the screen is a just a standard trigger sprayer. And it's kind of hard to tell, but there's a black pole there. And what that piece of yellow is almost looks like a juicy fruit gum, right? What that is is moisture sensitive paper. Um, whenever it's exposed to water, it actually turns color, it turns blue. Now, we have it on the back side of a pole, right? And this is kind of us kind of trying to see what we can use electrostatics with. And this is, hey, everyone has a household trigger sprayer. How can we apply, maybe we can create a product to apply electrostatics to this, make it attractive. So that pole's grounded, it's metal, um, and we're just taping that on just to give a visual reference. What you can see here is we've added a, a little unit at the base of this that you'll see the operator turn on. We're doing the exact same thing, it's the exact same bottle, exact same water and we do the same process we spray, and you can actually see oh, wow. that coating change. So now, instead of a line of sight, you know, these air spray and, and hydraulic, they, whatever they see and they hit, it's gonna stay there. Anything that's over, overlap, it's gone. It's in the booth, it's on the floor, it's in the air, right. wherever it may go. And this has kind of just always been like the, the norm. But what if we were able to use that electrostatic atomization from the number two process, but apply it to a liquid electrostatic gun? Yep. So using in a, let me see if I can go right here. This is a great visual. So using an Electra, these are both, you know, air spray guns. There's two different forms. You have direct and indirect. Think of that number one process as an indirect charge where we created an ion field that we were spraying through. That's exactly what a lot of the waterborne technology applicators still use today. It's just a little bit different. But in that gun, you can see the, instead of the, there's two little probes yep, on right the, the end. end. And if you're spraying a waterborne and you don't want to, you know, waterborne is conductive, so you, you can't ground your fluid supply. So how do you actually, you know, set up your system? You isolate the spray material from the actual charge of the material. So it won't ever leak back. So it's already atomized, it's already in droplets. It's not connected like a nice fluid stream. We can charge it externally using an um, inducted induction field. Yep. So the most common though is the, uh, the one you see up there and that's the, you know, a direct charge is how the powder guns work. It's yeah. how our the most popular liquid electrostatic guns. And basically what we're doing is, hey, we're taking that same number two technology, we're putting material past it, it's picking up the charge. And now we can be as fast as we were with air atomization or hydraulic atomization. But now we're using electrostatics. And now we've bumped up those transfer efficiencies. We get that wraparound effect that you saw in that video. Yeah. Now that's a little more extreme, right? Um, but you know, in the end, in the best 
best case scenario, I know there's other manufacturers that say their gun hits this TE. A rattle can for reference, or a spray paint can, you get about 12 to 17% TE, meaning the amount of you know paint yep. sprayed to paint the part. Versus evaporated solvent. Exactly, whatever. so you only get 17 yep. Percent max, right? When you look at an air spray gun, even the HVO, the conventional guns, they might get up into the 30s. But it all depends. If you're, are you spraying into a bathtub? You know, versus are you spraying a you know screen door? You know, there's, there's, it all depends on the application. There's a way that we can measure it efficiently, but in an actual application world, in an actual paint booth, when they have to meet production numbers, it's really hard to get above 30, 35 psi or percent TE on an air spray non-electrostatic gun. By simply adding electrostatics, we can bump, we can double that number, be up in the 60s and 70s. Like I said, that number two process gun was 99. You know, it's as close right. to 100 as we can possibly get. The only reason it's not 100 is because there's, at the very end, there's material left on the on, on that bell rim that has to be cleaned off that didn't actually get onto the part, right? Yeah. Um, so It's an incredible amount of loss. Yes. It yeah, is. I mean, no think, question. It, I mean, think about it nowadays. I think I, I had just bought a uh, paint can. I was just finishing off a, a bracket that I made for my car, and it's like nine dollars, nine or ten dollars. And you're like, oh, it's not that bad. But when you think about, you only only one dollar of that is actually going to make it to my part. Yep. You know, you're like, yeah. I'm I mean, wasting tons think of about it. You know, that's a small scale. Think about the guys that are spending at, at thousands seventeen percent. If you buy a hundred gallons of paint. Yeah, seventeen gallons make it on your part. It's it's an and astronomical each, right. And each gallon is seventy five to uh, you know three hundred fifty dollars. You know, yeah. uh, powder powder itself is is another you know crazy one. You know, uh, 50, the way we used to calculate for spray to waste in a powder shop in a spray to waste manual powder shop mm -hmm. was fifty percent loss. Yeah, that's. A $50 box of powder yeah. at, you know, yeah. $5 a pound, you know, now just take day. half of that off and yeah. just throw it away. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. Well, don't just throw it away. You have to throw it into your filters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. right. Your floor. And yeah. so and you're dirtying up your filters. You're changing your filters out more. Yep. And now you're having to dispose of It's just nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Paper just paint nuts. or powder four times. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times... You know, there are a lot of factors here uh, for yeah. those watching. There's a lot of factors here that have everything to do mm -hmm. with the quality of paint and the quality of powder that you buy. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who are in purchasing and you only go by the cost of the materials when you're buying paint for your plant or you're buying powder for your plant, I'm telling you, you could you could pay double the price for your powder per pound and and potentially buy it from somebody who you will double the amount of square footage that you will get out of your material. Exactly. Same with the liquid. Um, I mean, paint is paint, okay? Everybody makes their own paint. Everybody has their black magic and their additives and their pigments and whatever they're putting together, right? And let's face it, some of it's crap and some of it's Cadillac great. And you've got to find that balance between, okay, you know, my parts, if this was my part right here, 
I can't afford to put Cadillac paint on this because at the time I get this done, this is gonna cost $67 for mm -hmm. the customer to buy it, okay? So, um, but I also can't buy the bottom barrel stuff because when I paint it, it all starts falling off mm -hmm. and it won't stick on and it won't, it doesn't have any like durability later on. One wash in the dishwasher and it's gone, you know? And now I got a dishwasher problem. So you have to find that balance in between that Lamborghini and you know the the uh, the yeah the donkey, <laughs> the donkey. You know, somewhere <laughs> in the middle, you have to find that that matches your uh, your application. Now, on top of that, you also have to find the, right the way to, the way to go about you know spraying it. So. Um, I know we have something else to talk about, I, just very quickly, but we want to talk about, um, I believe we are at uh, rotary atomization, so the bell and the disc. Hey, I'll go through this really quick, because it's, you know, going back to that number two, you know, electrostatic atomization. You know, we're, we're putting paint on a bell cup or, you know, a, a shroud, but it's actually not being, that's not the external force. That's just to spread the paint out efficiently. Yep. And what's actually atomizing the material in that number two product is it, the the charge is at a hundred thousand volts, and the parts the part of your spraying is grounded. That difference in potential is what pulls the paint off. When we took about we took on the okay, let's take that charge that's applied to air spray. Now we're just charging the paint up as it's normally being atomized. Yep. What we can do now is go into centrifugal atomization, or you may be rotary atomization, you know, our tur our product, the turbo disc, it's just a disc atomization. It's very similar to that bell, except now we're spinning it a lot faster. And we're forcing that product to, you know, basically get wetted out using uh, centrifugal force. Yep. That's where it gets its name. And you're talking, this is, uh, whenever you get into these situations, you're dealing with high volume production. Correct. You're dealing with the need to get very precise on mill thickness, correct? Uh, paint thickness. Think automotive. Yeah. Think uh, you know, just high volume. Okay. Uh, on top of that, these are these are some of the, <laughs> in my opinion, they are they are some of the areas that I stay way back from. I approach with caution, and I'll I'll typically only I'll only approach those areas when they've been shut down and tagged out. Because you could get hurt real bad in those rooms. Oh yeah. I've heard stories, we don't need to go into them, but um, you know, when you're talking about the high centrifugal force, I've heard of people getting, you know, impaled, cut, cut yep. by the stream of paint. You know, very similar to, you know, that yeah, the injector situation. Uh, by the way, hand me that gun real quick. Yeah, of course. For those of you that are more novice, if you see this on the end of a spray gun, see these that don't have it. First of all, don't put your hand in front of it and, and spray anyway. But the difference is, if you put your hand in front of this one and you spray, you're going to get pain on you. I don't think you're going to necessarily get hurt. No. no um, you could, but this one, uh, you do this. And your problem, you, there's a there's a good probability that this arm will no longer be attached to your body by the time they finish cleaning it up, fixing fixing you. 
Uh, it will involve a tourniquet to stop the flow of solvent into your heart and everywhere else. So, yeah, so any of the hydraulic um, atomization, just like a pressure washer, you wouldn't want it in yeah, going over your foot if you're not wearing the right, you know, it'll rip all your skin. That's right. Same exact concept. So same thing here. We have a nice fine edge. So we, we're taking that shape of that. We call it a bell because the initial versions of that literally look like, like the Liberty Bell. bell. Yeah. That's just, and it's evolved now into much more flat shapes. So it looks more like a cone. Um, but it still has this uh, bell-like end piece. Now, we we first started with unserrated, and what I mean by that is at the very edge, it was just a smooth cut surface. We make these out of titanium in a lot of different products because of how much abuse they go through. The We found that if you cut that and make little channels for the wetted material that wants to leave yep. out, it can actually go through those channels, and now we have a very efficient control of atomization. Actually, this one graphic, this was a, a still done, it's, it's, it's a very old picture, but it's a really good demonstration of half that bell cup is serrated, the other half is. Gotcha. So okay. you can see that that half almost looks like a mohawk coming out. It's like a, sh is it shearing? Like it's, a sh yeah. It's flattening out. And you know, one of my early roles, uh, I was working in, in medical applications uh, for Carlisle, and I was trying to find ways to atomize materials that have never sprayed before. And one of those was uh, waterborne PTFEs. Um, or polytetrafluoral ethylene. So um, we're spraying them on guide wires and surgical tools and things like that to make just like you would in a cooking pan, you know, trying to slide through your body as it's cutting it. But that's the whole purpose of the coating. Those water-based materials are very shear sensitive. We put it through this and it immediately separated. Because all that is is a long polymer chain. So certain coatings don't behave well in bell cups. And, you know, we try to find new ways of doing it. And there are op opportunities. But, yes, it is a very high shear, uh, very, again, chaotic environment. But you can do a lot more material through this. Yep. And with the addition of electrostatics, this functions really well. Now, you know, you look at a spray gun, any of the air spray guns, or even um, the uh, hydraulic atomization, like this uh, product of the duck bill that you had shown. They're coming out very fast. They're in a forward direction. You know, obviously, air spray is probably the quickest, and then airless is a little bit step back. But now you have something that you're not using air, you're using centrifugal force, and if you don't have any other factors going on in that applicator on one of these bells, just like that picture, the material's gonna get to the end and go straight off, right? Yep. That's how turbo discs um, in that top right picture work. But a bell, you want to put it onto a part. So now we create what we call shape air, and this is this is where a lot of that balance oh, goes yeah. back in. Just like fan air on a gun, yep. very similar, and we, we, we just give it enough to force it in the direction of the part, but it's still much slower than if you're using an air spray gun. Yes. And, and sometimes it's so finite that you really sometimes can't see it. Yeah, the, uh, a typical, you know, we, and I don't want to get into many of the specifics if we want to later in a podcast, be more than happy to, but we talk about the particle distribution. We measure every droplet size because inconsistencies in droplet size will give you inconsistencies in your final finish, right? Yep. So um, when, we, when we were first developing bells, we found that our bell curve of like our particles, you know, a percentage of particles in this size range jumped way up and it was way more consistent. Than guns, because guns you kind of have clumps that are smaller, some that are larger, right. and we're still improving on that. You know, we're still making efforts to go because you know these aren't really hand tools; these are you know much more yeah. automatic situations. Um, but in the end, you know, th no, this they are is, not hand tools at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did have a, a prototype. We made, we did make a handheld bell. Um, 
that was it looked like a JGA gun okay. on the front of it. Used like a mechanical bearing. I've never it worked. It worked really well, but it, again, it, it it's mechanical bearing. You know, you can only force so much air through a you know three eighths air line, and it, it it once you started adding material, it started slowing the belt down. You got varied results, but we were able to make a thirty inch pattern with a wow. handheld belt. It's very cool. All right, let's go through the uh, just this, and then we're gonna. Yeah, wrap I, I think. Up. Yeah, I think this is. You know, this is just good sliding. If you're able to yeah. uh, watch, you know, we have two two different applicators on here. We've got a bell, and this is just comparing a bell to a uh, electrostatic handgun. Um, now, in the actual video, you'll see the electrostatic handgun. We we actually have the electrostatics turned off, but on the right are all the different types of applications. And what we're seeing in the images is the back side of this. So you look at a you know, no non-electrostatic, just regular handgun air spray, what yep. we spent most of the uh, early part of the right. uh, discussion about. Then you, you, you have that same technology, but now you've got electrostatics, and you're, now you're starting to see some rat. And what that means yep. is less paint sprayed a day, right? And right. more on the part. Right. And then you look at a bell, where we've immediately the cut bell out. just completely Exactly. Covers. Now, as you can see, you can still see some light areas. You can, I mean, there's no way to do it 100% from one side. Right, right. Even the discs, which are eight in the 80s percent uh, efficient, when they set up those systems, they have two, two loops. You see the one side of the part, and you see the other side of the part. You know, yeah. it's not a catch all Or you have a robot that, you know, has an applicator. Yeah, to well, two boots supposing, yes. So. Exactly. Right, right. So, and so to, to another highlight here for me is velocity is what's key here because as you look at the, the top picture with a conventional gun you're, you're you're breaking up the paint but you're throwing it at the part and what doesn't hit the initial surface of the part just continues on mm -hmm. it's either it's in the airstream and it's on the way to the filters and then in your second picture where you do add the electrostatics now you're beginning to see the benefit of the electrostatics because mm -hmm. you've added the draw element of electrostatic to the, the paint droplets and now it's finding its way to ground and then ultimately, when you look at the bell, now you've significantly reduced velocity and you've added electrostatics. And so that mm -hmm. is the, the second tier that, that it's, it's sort of the holy grail Correct. of atomization and transfer efficiency. Yeah. yeah I mean, it goes back to the, not to bring golf back into it, but the golf analogy. You know, you slice the ball. And some people have so much power that they, they almost force the ball through the spin, right? And... Be, it's that forward velocity that kind of takes away those other characteristics. Now, I'm not a, the best driver in the world, but what, I, what the only reason I bring that up is if you if the velocity is increased, that spin effect will have a less opportunity to take course, right? That's what a gun's doing. Now, if you have a if, if the same spin and you're going slower, now you have a bigger opportunity to actually catch on. And I, it, again, uh, electrostatics act and behave like a magnet. I mean, that's the best way I can kind of explain it to someone. The parts, the south pole of the magnet and the the guns, the north pole, and they, that's why they attract to each other. That's the easiest way to kind of explain it. Um, but in reality, you know, the parts grounded and we're just charged up the, uh, the material. Ours are typically a negative potential. It gives us a little bit better results than a positive potential. But in the end, yep. that's uh, electrostatics. Cool. Well, folks, you've just seen a master class of atomization by. Uh, by Mr. Peyton Cosart of, of Carlisle Fluid Technologies. I'm I'm kind of blown away. That was it was heavy. There was a lot of material. Uh, anything you want to cover before we? 
wrap up? That, or? No, I, th I think we did a good job of going through all of it and just recognize the importance of looking at the different technologies and deciding, going through the steps to demonstrate and prove which technology is most beneficial for each customer yeah. because mm -hmm. there are, there's plenty of situations and there's plenty of air caps. <laughs> so if you are watching this or listening to this and you need help because this is maybe it's overwhelming maybe you've tried one or two of the uh, of the you know the process that we've talked about today but just don't know what to do next just stop thinking about it call 1-800-334-1001 just tell them that you need to talk to somebody about atomization and you saw this podcast and you need to you need to get a hold of Wayne or myself or uh, Peyton you need to you need to talk to somebody we will make that happen we we can come into your plant listen if you have a small medium-sized facility and you need help on site we can bring the help to you or you can come visit us in one of our uh, finishing labs on site here if you're a larger facility your demand is much bigger for what you're going to need and you need to do some trial runs. We can do some of that in our high point lab, but we can also all go on a field trip to Toledo, Ohio, <laughs> where I've been, Wayne's oh, yes. been, I, I know there. you've been a bunch, <laughs> of, a bunch uh, and uh, get some pro training really fast on the particular application that you need to master for your facilities. To run your run your products, it's all about repeatability, right? Yes. It's all about repeatability, profitability, and uh, being able to uh, do it with less rejects or hopefully no rejects. So doing it right um, the first time. Yeah, that's you're in the business to not do rejects. You're in the business <laughs> to do it one time and get it out the door right as fast as possible. Yep. So. Uh, Peyton, man, I can't thank you enough. Oh, no problem. I can't thank Love you enough. Uh, it's been a, a really good deep dive into atomization, and uh, I really appreciate it. Wayne, thank you so much, man. Appreciate you having me. First podcast for you. Yes, sir. Hoping out the uh, last. Not the first video, but the first podcast. <laughs> the uh, mega. <laughs> so, you know, if you're struggling, another thing, if you're struggling with, uh, with uh, permitting, you know, and and that juxtaposition of atomization and the right process and the paints that you have to use or whatever. Again, you can call Air Power 1-800-334-1001. Uh, go to our website, airpower-usa.com. We'll have it on the screen here. Um, and then Air Power Airwaves, if you're watching this and you just want to listen to it uh, on a drive uh, or whatever in the evening, uh, go to airpowerairwaves.com and uh, if you're watching this uh, and you want to listen you can also go to you know Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, any of the places that you listen to your podcast. Uh, again if you're listening to this and you want to watch all these this is a, uh, a, a uh, video heavy presentation <laughs> Uh, so I would strongly encourage you watching this at airpowerlive.com or go to the Airpower Manufacturing Solutions YouTube page and uh, do me a favor, do Airpower a favor. Share this video, like, subscribe. 
and if you subscribe, you're notified for all of the podcasts and all the videos, the training videos, the air power approved videos that we do moving forward. Um, there's a ton of them already on from uh, every single category that air power has of assemble, move, and coat. There, everything's covered in videos, filters, all kinds of uh, spray technologies, um, tools, you, you name it. We've got it there. So, all right. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. My Appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you, Jai. And remember, I'm going to close this out by saying what I always say. Manufacture it a great day. Thank you for joining the Air Power Airwaves podcast. Air Power Airwaves is a production of Air Power Inc. and Air Power Live Studios and is hosted by Travis Steyerwald. For more information, please visit airpowerairwaves.com. For more information on all of our products, brands, and manufacturing solutions, please visit airpower-usa.com. If you have any questions or need product support, please contact Air Power at one 800 334 one zero zero one.